On June 15th of this year, between 3 and 7 p.m., I will be guiding a bootleg and brewery tour through St. Paul. The focus of the tour will be the history of breweries and alcohol in the St. Lee City, with an emphasis on prohibition. Included on the tour will be two stops, one at York Brewery and the other at Waldman's. Tickets are $25 each. Seating is limited. Contact me through mostnotorious.com or email me directly at erivenous at yahoo.com. So I have another interesting episode for you, which was recorded live like the last episode was. It's another murder in Minnesota, this time in 1902. The victim was Josephina Olson. So we'll play the interview first, and then after the interview, keep listening. I will read an account directly from the newspaper in 1902 so you can hear the story as it was reported just days after it had happened. All right, let's begin. I'm here today with Betty Gove and her granddaughter, who will be in the room, possibly adding some information here and there. We'll see how it goes. Uh, This is all very informal on this podcast. But it was her granddaughter, Sarah, who contacted me after reading an article in the St. Paul Pioneer Press about me a few weeks ago. And her grandmother, Betty, again, who's sitting right here with me, has a very personal connection to a uh, very notorious murder that happened in Aiken, Minnesota, on October 21st of 1902. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. So please tell me, how did you first hear about this? Was this was this something that you you knew about growing up? No, I'll tell you, I didn't hear too much about it growing up, but there were little snippets here and there of the things I must have heard growing up. You know, my father came from Kleshe, Sweden at seven years old with a family, with his brothers and one sister, and you know, On Saturdays, uh, my two uncles would come in from the farm and they'd sit around the kitchen stove talking about their experiences coming over from Sweden. And I'm sure there were little snippets here and there that I heard that this about this a terrible crime that happened. And uh, over the years, I would hear little rumors and things, and I never thought too much about it because I was so busy just growing up. But uh, there was a connection to this whole murder. You see, after uh, Alfred Olson's uh, uh, fiancé was going to, they were going to be married, her father killed her, stabbed her in the back with a knife, and... uh, After a few years, Alfred Olson married my dad's sister, Martha, and they moved to his farm on on, uh, Clear Lake and raised six children. And the last one of their six children died just about two years ago, and she was my cousin, who I was real close to. Uh, But other than that... um, We heard a few little tales going around the area about a young man who would, every spring, 
puts a little bouquet of wildflowers on a grave in one cemetery. And uh, I didn't really know what cemetery it was, but in my fiction that I wrote about it, I wrote that the cemetery belonged to our little Swedish church way up in the woods where my grandparents and my mother went and my father went to uh, services there. So uh, that's where I laid my uh, uh, plans to make it at that little cemetery. And you know, I think it was about a year or two after my husband and I were married, uh, I decided to go and find that grave. I didn't know where it was. So one day my husband and I uh, went up to this little cemetery and uh, we went down to the road and then went and followed the fence all the way up. And we went through brambles and uh, raspberry bushes and everything. And uh, there we found a little tiny tombstone that was way in the back of the cemetery, kind of leaning against the fence. So we stooped down, and it was made of a real soft stone. It wasn't marble. It was a soft stone. It was kind of crumbling. And we brushed away the lichen and the brush and everything and looked at it. And I don't know if I saw a little letter in there or not. But anyway, we just left it. And then about maybe 30 years later, we decided. I decided to go back up and look for that little stone again. And I followed the same way along the fence, and there was nothing there. I think it had crumbled into the ground, so I thought, well, I wonder if that was this girl, Josephina's grave. I didn't know. I didn't know if I was the right cemetery or not. But this is how I base my story on that I wrote about it, that this was where she was buried in that little cemetery. And... Uh, when I wrote the story, I started it about three, four times, and I didn't really know how to start that little story because I didn't know too much about it, didn't know the background. So I started it many times, and then I put it away. And then about two years ago, I decided I was going to really write that story, make it fiction based on fact, and that's what I did. So I decided, well, how am I going to start at this time? And I thought, well, I've got to set the really the mood of this story. And I thought, I just can't leap into it. I have to start it at the beginning of the road that goes out to the cemetery. And I uh, stopped all along the way, the lake and the tamarack trees that I saw in the distance. And that's what I based my stories on, I, uh, or why I titled it, my stories that I wrote, uh, The Tamarack Tales. And uh, so I just finally got to the cemetery and I walked down where all so many of my relatives were buried until I came to this one little grave and I thought, well, that must be Josephina's grave. So I laid down, I just... Uh, lay down on the ground right beside that uh, little plot where she was buried, or I thought she was, and then I fell asleep. And while I was sleeping, this little voice came to me out of where I don't know, and she said, 
I am so glad somebody has come to my grave. I have waited all these years and wanted to tell my story about this little girl who came from Sweden and came to America and up into Aiken County and was going to be married and live happily ever after and have all kinds of children. But I was killed by my father. Well, then the whole story proceeded and I wrote it all out uh, and made up facts that I didn't know about. And so that's how it came to be. That's wonderful. And um, I, I know I should never ask a, a woman her age, but I think it, it's very inspirational, I think, to maybe people who want to write a book. Can you tell us how old you were when you started writing the book? <laughs> I must have been about uh, 90 years old. Now I'm 93, going to, I'll be 94 in a couple of months. And I've written all my life. I've written poetry. I wrote my first poem when I was in third grade. And uh, I can even repeat part of it. Do you want to hear it? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> uh, my little neighbor girl came to school and was so sad that day. And so I decided to sit down. Here I am, eight years old, not even eight, seven, maybe years old. And so I wrote down this little poem and I wrote, I wrote two pages, but I've lost the second page and I don't remember what it says. But the first page says, why be sad this happy day when all the world is bright and gay? Take your sunbonnet off the hook and go down and wade in the sparkling brook. And I gave it to her. And my teacher, Miss Russell, was just so surprised that I had written something to this little girl. And I guess that maybe started on all that I decided. I don't know if I decided I was going to be a writer, but I wrote more poems uh, than all my life. And uh, I've written stories, short stories, and uh, just reminisces about when I was growing up in Aiken, about that wonderful little town up north that I feel has really shaped my life. Uh, so uh, this is why I decided to write this story about Josephina, because I felt that she lived such a short life and she had to have somebody be there for her and tell her story and that's why I wrote it. That's lovely. It's definitely a story that deserves to be told. I have seen the name Oli Olson before. There weren't that many people executed by the state of Minnesota. We've, we haven't had the death penalty now for quite a while but this this was one of the men that was actually executed by the state of Minnesota for murder. And we can talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. But uh, what do you know about Ole Olson? Um, how, how many years had he been here by 1902? Do you recall um, what was his life like? Well, I really don't know how many years he was here. And when I wrote the story, uh, I had to make up some timelines about when he came over and when he had his children over. Uh, there's another version of the story, too, that came out um, about how he killed her. It was written by the granddaughter of uh, Pastor Dolly, the minister. Now, I don't know. They say in this one uh, article, they said he was a spiritual advisor to Uli Olson. 
And then they mentioned another minister that was supposed to be a spiritual advisor. So I have no idea if he belonged to this one little church up in the woods or he belonged to another congregation. I don't know. But anyway, um, this Ole Olson, uh, I had to make up stories about him because I didn't really know anything about him either. But they say that he was kind of a... Uh, hard man, that he wasn't really kind to his wife over in Sweden. And so I brought that into my story too. And also that um, when, he, when he moved over here, he lived by himself for a couple of years before he had the money to send home to get his wife and family. But his wife died before he, she came over here. And so it was just his two little children, and I don't know how old they were when they came. I have no idea. But Josephina, I put down in my story that she probably was maybe 13, 14, and the brother Fritoff was a little younger. And uh, they lived on the, in his little house uh, up by Clear Lake, and they said he was a drunkard. He drank a lot. And uh, he claimed that when he killed her, he was drunk, and he didn't mean it. And uh, so they said that when he was being executed, the things he said right before they put the hood over him and uh, and hung him was he was ranting about the evils of alcohol. So I don't know if that's true or not either. But uh, I don't know what kind of a man he was. But, you know... Uh, Apparently, Josephina was very uncomfortable uh, living in the house with him because he was trying to abuse her. And uh, she was uh, felt that she wanted to get away from that. So when she met Alfred Olson, who had a farm up on uh, Clear Lake, well, they fell in love and they were going to be married. And the day... Uh, before they were going to go up to uh, Aiken and get married, and they were going to go to Duluth on their honeymoon. Uh, she had been out working in the fields and came in and sat down on the outside steps and put her feet in a pail of water or a basin of some kind and was washing her feet. And her father came up behind her and said, you're going to be nobody's wife but mine and stabbed her. Well, then afterwards they said that he was so remorseful, uh, he felt it was uh, the drink that had done it to him. He'd been drinking and didn't know what he was doing. And so many different versions of what happened after she was stabbed were written down, and I have no idea which is true or not. They felt, some said that she ran out of the house, uh, went on the uh, road and fell down and some little school kids found her. Another one said that uh, she came out and her brother found her. I don't know. Nobody knows what really happened. Sure. But when I wrote the story, I had to make up a lot of this because I didn't know. Right. I, I did a little. I did a little research on my own on the story in Good. the last day or so. Good. And, and again, you're absolutely right. There are different accounts from different newspapers. It's kind of hard to figure out what's correct and what's not, right? Right. 
it, it sounded to me like he had been here in Minnesota for about eight years on his own. And he had left behind his wife and all of his children in Sweden. Yes. And evidently he was so lonely and he imbibed in alcohol, like you said, uh, constantly. It's, it's really interesting. There is this phenomenon that I've noticed in doing research on, on other cases throughout the Midwest at the turn of the century, this loneliness that people felt, especially these, these people who lived by themselves on these farms in the middle of nowhere at the turn of the century, especially difficult possibly for him because English was his second language. I don't know, but I'm sure he was in a community with other Swedish people as well. It wasn't perhaps a major issue for him, but this, this isolation, this loneliness that people felt when they were on these secluded farms by themselves with few people to talk to. I don't think that was uh, uncommon in those days because I heard rumors growing up about bachelors that living up in the woods or those whose wives had died and how they had abused their children, their daughters, or some relatives. So it wasn't unusual in those days to have that happen. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't think that people thought a lot of it when they heard rumors going around. It was just something that happened. Right. Uh, so I don't really uh, can give you any other ex explanation of that. But I could see that growing up, having different uncles that lived by themselves. They must have had the same problem. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, one, one account that I read um, said she was 18 when she came over. And her younger brother was 16. I think his name was Fritz. And her name was, or, or something that started with an F. Um, uh, he was Fritoff. Fritoff. Oh, Fritoff, I apologize. Okay, yes. Fritoff. Well, I thought she was a little bit uh, younger than that when she came over. But maybe not because I don't know. But I made her younger in my story. Sure. And Fritoff, too, because I gave them a couple years to live with their father and to get to know people in the community and in the church so they could become a part of that whole community. And that's why I made her a little bit younger, but that might not be true because I don't know. I don't know when she was born in Sweden. I have no idea. You're allowed literary license with your book. <laughs> Lots of authors do that. <laughs> it's perfectly good. It's a beautifully written book, too, by the way. So, yes, well, thank you I can tell so that much. you write poetry. It, it reads like a, a piece of, of literature, not necessarily a piece of nonfiction. So I think that's what you were going for when you wrote the book. Well, that's why I wanted to start out so many different times, because I, didn't, I had to get the right mood for that story. And I feel that that's why, how I write my poetry, too. Mm -hmm. uh, people ask me, how do you write poetry? And I say, I don't write it. It writes me. Uh, so many times I'll wake up in the middle of the night and have a little line running through my head and I have to write it down right away. And then I, in the morning the whole poem is there. That's happened so many different times that I can't, uh, uh, I can't explain it. Uh, can I give you an example? Or do I have Absolutely. Time? Sure. <laughs> I wrote a poem this summer. And it was so funny before I went to bed. Uh, I kept 
saying this sentence over and over again in my head. A pretty lady with pretty hair, a pretty lady with pretty hair. And I thought, where is that coming from? And I saw daffodils in the background. I thought, oh, this is just crazy. I didn't think too much of it. But then I went to bed. And about four o'clock in the morning, I woke up and I said, this has to be a poem. So I wrote about the pretty lady with pretty hair, sat upon a carpeted stair, drinking wine from a tall, slim glass, and reading from a poetry book resting in her lap. And what she was reading was, all at once I saw a cloud, a host of golden daffodils beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. And I and this young man was coming by, and he said, she's reading Wordsworth. So he hid behind a newel post and listened to the rise and fall of her beautiful voice. And he fell in love, as you must know, with a beautiful lady with beautiful hair. And then my heart with pleasure fills. And I da I'm dancing with the daffodils. Now, where that came from, don't even ask me, because I don't know. Wow. You were just inspired. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. This has happened so many times. And maybe that's how I wrote the story, too, because I had to get a beginning. I couldn't just start out of a clear blue sky. I had to set the mood and have the beginning so you knew that something was going to happen. And you don't know where or when, but it did happen. And it all just seemed, once I started writing, I had no problem. I just sat down and wrote the whole thing. I didn't even have to correct it. I didn't have to change it. It just, the whole thing just was right there, just like my poem. So I, it's odd. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Interesting. Yeah, um, from, from what I had read today, and I think I'll go, go back after we're done and because I do want to read the entirety of, of the letter that she wrote. And I didn't bring it with me right now. So when, once we're done talking here and I go I, back and edit this, uh, I'm I, gonna... I, have the, I have the letter. I have it. Uh, I brought the article from the Aiken paper. And I think it's got the contents of the letter in it. Uh, do you want me to get it out of my purse? Well, I mean, you could you could also summarize it here, too, if you'd like. <clears throat> well, yes, she wrote to her uh, Aunt Sarah, and it was really her, um, she considered her her sister because they were so close back in Sweden. So she wrote the letter and telling about that she had fallen in love with this wonderful man, Alfred Olson. They were going to be married in Aiken, go to Duluth on their honeymoon. And she said that she was so glad to leave home because her father had been uh, abusing her and was also uh, trying to uh, talk her into staying. And she said, no, she really had to get out of the house and move. So she said, by the time you get this letter, <laughs> I will have been married. So she signed it, Mrs. Alfred Olson, and sent it on. Mm. And that is a letter that I read down in the Aiken Independent Age about that uh, letter that she wrote. Uh, it was a little more than that, but these are just uh, uh, the things that I remember of it. 
And uh, so they all knew why she was getting away from her, the father. They all knew that in Sweden. Um, and it was it was only written, I think, like four days before her murder. So it was a, well, her it, her thoughts were very fresh in that letter. Absolutely, they were, and uh, she felt that she was getting away when she had to get away. Uh, otherwise, she would have uh, uh, stayed with him, I suppose, and who knows what would have happened. Uh, I look back when I think about that poor girl. Uh, you have to feel for her and wondering, uh, was she doing the right thing? Because, you know, in those days, people respected their fathers and mothers, particularly their fathers, and didn't want to do anything to make the fathers mad at them or their mothers, but particularly the fathers. So I'm sure she had real mixed emotions about why she had to leave, too. But she fell in, I think her love for Alfred were the ones that made her really feel she had to go. And she was going to have a wonderful life and have all kinds of, I know she wanted all kinds of children and, and leave, live with him. So it, it's, it's tragic when you think about it. This young life was snuffed out uh, before she had a chance to live her dream. But then when I look back on it now, and my Aunt Martha was able to step into her place and move to Clear Lake and raise eight, six children, four boys and two girls. And I knew all of them so very well because I used to go out on the farm and see them like on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon. We'd go out and visit them. So I knew all the four boys and the two girls very well. They were part of our family. You realize when my dad and his brothers and sisters came over from Sweden, and they were very close together. And they, uh, we all got together as families for a lot, all the years I was growing up. So all of our families were very close, and our cousins were very close to us. So I felt very close to all of us. Uh, uh, Alfred Olsen's children, particularly my cousin, who was the last one that died. She was two years older than uh, I was, but she was my sister's age, and we spent a lot of time together. But you know, all those years my cousin Kitty was growing up, I don't think she knew anything about it. It was never mentioned. Not, nobody mentioned anything about this murder. But, you know, that's not unusual in a Scandinavian uh, family. They keep things to themselves. They don't want anybody to know about it. If it was had any scandal or anything, they wouldn't talk about it. And I put that down why I never knew anything about this. Just little pieces here and there because I didn't want anybody to know about it. It must yeah. have been very traumatic because when her younger brother... Josephina's brother found her stabbed. He ran to Alfred, and it was Alfred that came first. I and, don't know that. And found the body of Josephina. Now, um, where did you hear that? Uh, I read that in the the newspaper today. 
Well, I had never heard of that either. Never heard of that version of it of who found her. I have no I had no idea. She was she was telling her her brother as she was as she was dying, go get Alfred. Oh, go get Alfred. Okay. So he evidently um the brother had been sent by the father out to chop wood or something in the barn, do something in the barn. It was all premeditated. Oh, um, was. He had sent him out and when he left, he bolted the door. Well, that was another version of the story that I hadn't heard. But you know, my father attended the execution. My dad was about 21 or 22 when he went to that uh, hanging. And you know, my mother told we kids years later that he would never talk about it because it was such a horrible experience. He didn't want anybody to hear his version of it, but she said he did. She said Dad never talked about it ever, so I didn't hear anything about it from my family. It's it's interesting that because he was put on trial for for the murder, of course, and his defense attorneys attempted to claim that he was insane, That's that right. he had a moment of insanity, which was a very common defense in the late 19th century. That's something that defense attorneys would try all the time. I think they probably still do, right? Yeah, they do too. That in a moment of, of rage or temporary insanity, he killed her. But it, it sounds like there's some evidence that it was premeditated. Um, according to one account, he had told a neighbor a few days earlier that he would not allow his daughter to marry Alfred. It well, would not happen under any circumstances. So there's some evidence to suggest that he had, this wasn't just some crazy fit of, of anger, you know, the day before, that he was kind of building this up in his head as something that he wanted to do. Well, you just never know what their thoughts are when they live alone for so many years, because he did before his daughter and, and uh his uh, son came over. You never know what, uh, maybe he was drinking too much and that might have influenced his thinking. You don't know. Right. Uh, but anyway, it was tragic that he decided that he had a killer, but he said it was in a fit of rage. And uh, when I wrote my story, I uh, went back to uh, when the girl and her boy and her brother were living in Sweden, how the mother was unhappy. And I brought that into the story about he had probably been abusing his wife too, so you don't know uh, what the circumstances was with his life before he came to America. You don't know. But I sort of made up all this story and... Uh, of how he behaved when he was living in Sweden and then when he came over to America. And uh, I wish that we had more background on how he was living in America. I don't know anything about that. And there isn't any uh, any farmer or any of his neighbors that even made any uh, statements after he was hung. I think that's so odd that nobody made any comments about it. But there again, that was that code of silence amongst the Scandinavians. And I'm sure those farmers that lived around him decided they were never going to talk about it, just like my dad was. 
And I think you have to uh, look at it that way, that he, uh, maybe he was a little deranged. I don't know. I have no idea. Well, there were doctors, including the superintendent of the Rochester Hospital, a doctor named um, Kilborn, who examined him and spent hours with him and came to the conclusion that he was completely rational, completely sane. I mean, this is one doctor's opinion, of course. He, he was trying to appeal the sentence. I think he was tried and convicted of murder in November of 1902. And by the beginning of March, they had already picked a date for him to be yeah. executed. And then he did get a stay for like 30 or 40 days. They wanted to thoroughly investigate whether he was sane or not. So doctors came and visited him and determined that he was completely clear in the head. He knew what he did was wrong, and he felt remorse for it and had no excuse for it. Well, he put it down as being too much drink, yes, know, alcohol. So maybe we have to go with that. And if he said he, that as well, that if he, yeah. he, if he hadn't been drinking, he never would have done it. Yes. Well, you have to leave it at that and hope that that uh, will satisfy people. I don't know. Right. Uh, but it was a tragic tale, and uh, I didn't really know too much. Uh, this was years and years later that we made the connection that he was, uh, Alfred married my aunt, and I I guess I didn't get the connection there because uh, we knew who she was, but she was dead and gone by the time that I grew up, so we didn't really know what happened to her. What you said was absolutely right, according to the letter. She said that she should have known better because in Sweden, he had abused her mother. That's right. So he had already, he had already done that. And she was telling, you said her, her was it her cousin or her, um, her aunt, Sarah, right? Was, yeah. was the person she was writing yes. that letter to. Yes. Saying, I love Minnesota. This is a wonderful place. I think she uses the word delightful. Like, I'm, I'm, it's a beautiful place to come, but she was kind of trapped in this house. And I think she had arrived like six months prior to her death. So she had been kind of trapped in this household, forced to cook and clean and do everything for her father. And then I think she even mentions in the letter that her father wants to make her his wife, right. yes. which is a really interesting way of putting it. Yes, yes. And... Uh... Well, you have to look at her as a poor little girl that uh, had so many dreams and was brutally murdered by her father. And it's a, it's a sad tale. And I wish that I had known more about it while I was growing up. But uh, there again, nobody said anything, and I just heard little bits and pieces along the way. So I had to... Uh, I had to piece together the story myself, and that's why I wrote it out as a story with uh, uh, the facts there. But then I had to make it the story myself, and that's the one that I uh, that you apparently have read. So um, I guess I relate to her. I, I can think about her because I I know I went out and looking looked for her grave. Uh, out in the cemetery, and I don't know if it was her grave. I have no idea. But in my mind, I felt that it was. So <laughs> I guess I have to leave it at that.
Have you visited the the, the site of, of the farm, the, the Olson farm? Do you know what's there now? Has it been a while since you've been there? Oh, I haven't been out to the, the Clear Lake. Uh, oh, gosh, maybe I haven't looked around the lake now for many, many years, not until I was, since I was a child. Uh, but I know that we would go out there in the summertime because uh, my cousin Kitty would go home and live with her family, her father and her brothers and sisters out there in the summer. And we'd go out and visit on that little farm out by uh, Clear Lake. But I haven't been around there to see if it's still there. I have no idea. I'm sure that all of his children now are gone, every one of them, because I know my last kitty died about two years ago and all our brothers and sisters but I know they had a big family a lot of grandkids and now there must be grandkids great grandchildren all around the whole area so um, I'm sure that I don't know if one of the kids got the farm afterwards I have no idea don't even know where it is if any of my listeners here wanted to to read your book, possibly? Is there a way that they could do that? She hasn't been published yet, but we've submitted to a few publishers. So okay. Um, but yeah, absolutely. We could um, sort of informally publish it online, like in a PDF form. If Just keep, okay with that. Yeah. keep me posted on yeah, whatever absolutely. you'd like to do. If, you, if yeah. you'd like to wait to get it published and, and in yeah. a future episode, I can mention that. Yeah. 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 Yep. No, we, I think you'd be happy to share it, right, Betty? Yes. Yeah. Well, do you know I wrote five stories, and this is one of them. I wrote stories about my background and things that have happened up in uh, Bacon and when I grew up. And all these five stories, some are taking place in uh, the property that we own up there in the woods, and all of them have something to do with my background. That's why I call them the Tamarack Tales, because... I've always loved the tamarack trees, particularly in the fall. And I remember saying to somebody once, the tamarack trees make my heart hurt when I look at them. And I don't know if it was one of my kids or somebody said, oh, you just can't get a heart hurt because you look at a tamarack tree. And I said, oh, yes, you can, because I still feel that way. And that's why I named my five stories the tamarack tree. And I'm hoping that somebody will publish my five stories because I think that uh, there are stories that really come from my heart and how I grew up in this little town of Aiken that it had such an impact on my life. Uh, I don't know. It uh, it was during the 30s that I grew up, twenty late 20s and 30s, where I had the freedom to roam that whole town. And uh, I look back now and I'm wondering what my, uh, uh, why my mother and dad didn't keep a better eye on me because <laughs> I could roam all the woods around there. My girlfriends and I would picnic out in the woods all the time on Potter's Woods or Keesley and skate up there in the wintertime. And nobody would say, well, uh, 
where are you going and when are you going to be home? And I'd say, well, I'll be home for supper time and that's okay. But uh, I still have so many stories about Aiken that I have written. I've just got notebooks full of them. <laughs> <laughs> and all kinds of things that have happened to my family in living in Aiken. Oh, a neighbor woman shot our dog right out her back door one noon when we were all home. Oh. And how my sister was almost kidnapped by a chimney sweep. Oh. And that went to trial, too. So there are all kinds, I've got all kinds of stories to tell. Okay, we have to pause here for just a second. Your sister was almost kidnapped by a chimney sweep. Yes, and she was. the man was caught. Pardon? The man was caught and put on oh, trial. Oh, yes. And my dad had to testify because my when she came, you know... <laughs> I think she was about seven years old, and she went over to a neighbor girl's about a block and a half away. And when she got there, uh, she went up to the front door and pounded on the door, and nobody answered. So she went around to the back door and went on the porch and was knocking on the door. When this tim chimney sweep came out uh, of, a, of a corner and with a gunny sack and was trying to put her in the gunny sack. And my sister is red-haired and very feisty. <laughs> she kicked and screamed and she came running home as fast as her little legs would take her. And my dad happened to be home in the morning for his morning coffee or something because he must have been building a house around the area. But anyway, my dad took off and ran down the street. My dad was a big, tall man, too, and ran down and found this chimney sweep hiding in the woodshed. And he went in and nabbed him by the nap of the neck and ran up to the courthouse, which was a block away, and uh, got him arrested. And my dad had to go on to the, the courthouse for the trial. And... Uh, I guess my sister had to testify, but they wouldn't let me go to the trial because I was only five years old, and I guess they put him in prison. Well, that's all that I remember and all that I know about that. Oh, my goodness. What a story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've written it all down, and then one day when we came home for noon lunch, I must have been five, six, or seven years old, and we had a beautiful collie dog beautiful dog that we just loved and she was outside in our backyard during the noon hour and we could watch her running around the yard and all of a sudden she had to decide why to leap over the fence to the next back neighbors that lived behind us and this woman came out of her back door with a shotgun and killed the dog. And then my dad, we heard the gunshot, and my dad ran out the back door. He picked up the dog and brought her bleeding home and put her on our kitchen floor. And my mother came with rags and wiped her up, and then we watched her die. And, you know, that was so traumatic for we little kids to see. But that stuck in my mind, and so I wrote about that, too. But these are all the things about growing up. And I look back down, and I figure, well, I guess it was a pretty normal childhood. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But uh, anyway, uh, I have so many stories from growing up that you can't imagine. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for sitting down with me and sharing today. <laughs> 
Maybe I said too much, or maybe I shared too much. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but good luck. I've never done this before. I didn't know anything about a podcast. But it was so nice to sit down with somebody who wanted to hear my story. Absolutely. I'm sure my listeners will 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 love listening to this. And again, <laughs> keep us keep us abreast of of your progress with getting your book published and at whatever decision you make as far as how you want to release it. I will I'll, I'll announce it on my podcast at a later episode. So, well, well thank you again. Well, it was most delightful to talk to you. And uh if anybody else wants to hear anything, <laughs> they can just find this 93-year-old lady, and I'm like, I'd love to talk to them. <laughs> Perfect. So again, I wanted to finish up this episode by going over some of the details of, of the murderer a little bit more fully. I went to the Aitken Age, the local newspaper, to the front page on October 28, 1902. The article offers both an account of the grisly crime and also a translation from Swedish to English of the letter we talked about in this episode. I'll read the letter first, and then go to the article that explains the murder in more detail. My beloved sister Sarah, I take a pen in my hand and write you a few lines. It is a long time since I wrote you, but just the same, I have not forgotten you. Although it may seem so, I am now in the delightful America you have heard that I would go to. The journey was all right, and I like it well here. Papa has a nice home, but as you know, that is not everything. He is not nice. And that I should have known beforehand, because he was not good to Mama. You know that I am young, and like the society of young folks, and did especially that of a young man whom I have taken a liking to and with whom I associate most, and that he, father, could not tolerate. And he wanted to have me for his wife. He tempted me harder than you can believe, but thanks to God, I could resist the temptation. This may well surprise you, but it is as true as I am living. It is true that I have cried much, but I have had a good friend. He has always consoled and helped me, and he is a Dane by the name of Alfred Olson. We shall be married on Wednesday the 22nd, and I can only bid you welcome to our wedding. He is a nice and honorable man, has much land, and I hope I shall have everything nice. I think it is too bad, but rather than to become a bad woman, I must sooner leave him. Do you not think I am doing right, my dear sister? Write soon. Be so good, but say nothing to Grandma when you write, because then she would be angry. Undersigned by your sister, Josephina Olson. In detail, the community was shocked last Wednesday morning to learn of the brutal murder of Josephina Olson at the hands of her own father. And when it was learned that she was to have been married on that day, sympathy and pity were with the unfortunate girl and her lover, and wrath and indignation were poured out upon the inhuman father. The more the crime was discussed, 
and the more details were learned, the more terrible and impossible it all seemed. Wednesday was to have been the young woman's wedding day. Tuesday night she was murdered. Thursday, the funeral. O.G. Olson, a widower, a Swedish farmer, who had been in this country some years, living at Clear Lake, about 16 miles southeast of Aitken. Last summer, sent for his 18-year-old daughter and his son, younger, who were left in the old country. About two months ago, they arrived here and went to live on the farm with their father. Josefina made the acquaintance of Alfred Olson, a prosperous and respected young Dane farmer living nearby. They proposed marriage and were opposed in this by the girl's father, who did not want to lose the girl and did not like the young man because of some trouble they had had. The father was away from home during days for a time, and upon his return Tuesday night, after finishing his supper, sent his son, who is 16 years old, to the barn to feed the horses. He then bolted the door and taking up an ugly knife with a very sharp point, one fashioned from a file, struck his daughter in the breast with it. She broke the latch on the door and escaped from the room. On the way to the gate, she met her brother coming from the barn. She told him what had happened and said she was going to Alfred, but fell and expired without going farther. The knife was in her hand when she met her brother. The boy went to his father in the door asking what he had done. The father replied that it was done and told the boy to go for a team. The boy, instead of going for a team, ran over to Alfred Olson's and got him. When they returned together, the father was still in the house. Alfred went to her and after finding that she was dead, went with the boy to the neighbors for help, and Alfred Olson and Ole O. Brown got a team and went to town for the sheriff. This all happened between eight and nine o'clock. The report that the girl had taken her clothes from home without her father's knowledge is a mistake, as he had known it for several days and also knew for a week before that the wedding was to take place on Wednesday. The license was secured on the 14th, the week before. The murderer, realizing to some extent what he had done, went to August Johnson, a neighbor, and had him drive him to town where he gave himself up to the authorities and was locked in a cell in the county jail. It is reported that he told Johnson that he had intended to do it the night before. On the way home that night, he told a neighbor that he was going home and put a stop to the wedding. At noon, Wednesday, an aged reporter interviewed the prisoner. He can talk very little English, but through Deputy Hansen as interpreter, answered all questions asked. He had nothing to offer to justify the dead and, and admitted that there had been no quarrel. He was eating his dinner at the time and while showing evidence of regret or fear, he was self-possessed and made no demonstration of deep grief. A coroner's inquest was held by Dr. Belsheim, deputy coroner, 
On Wednesday forenoon, and the body of the dead girl was just where she fell when he arrived. The verdict was in accordance with the facts printed. The funeral of the dead girl was held Thursday, Reverend H. Bergman officiating, and it was one of the saddest duties that gentleman was ever called upon to perform. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious. See you next time.